Thank you, Dane. As we look at one of the things as we look in this passage, we see that it has to do with eyesight. Uh, the last part of that passage, a guy who has been blind, his sight is restored. And as we consider our eyesight, that our spiritual eyesight and our physical eyesight don't work in the same way. Our physical eyesight operates like this. A couple years ago, I go to the eye doctor, and the eye doctor says, there are some changes in your eyes, but we don't need to do anything yet. And uh, I'm leaving, I'm checking out, and the ladies at the counter say, so what did they tell you? And I said, I think she said, you're getting old. And um, she was right, so they scheduled another appointment a year later, and I ended up having to wear glasses. And as we recognize what happens as we get older physically, the natural progression is that our eyesight diminishes. And yet, as we would read in the Bible, in the passage we'll see that look at today, that as we grow as believers, when we come to know Jesus as our Savior, God opens our eyes. He opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel, to the beauty of who Jesus is and all that he's done for us. He opens our eyes. But then, the longer we're believers, the older we get as believers, our eyesight doesn't diminish, it actually sharpens. We get a sharper vision the longer we live with Jesus, the longer we follow him. We begin to see Jesus in clearer and clearer ways and cause us to love him in greater and greater ways. That should be our natural progression as believers. But it's not actually a natural progression. It's actually a supernatural progression as it's God that continues to give us that sharper insight. Well, as we look at our passage this morning, in that first section in chapter 8, verses 1 to 10, we reviewed that last week, but I wanted to include it this week because it ties in with the rest of this passage. And last week we saw that Jesus satisfied the need of a hungry crowd. A group of people had been with Jesus for three days. I mean, they're, he's teaching and teaching, and they're listening and listening, and they're soaking it all in. And Jesus realizes that they've been with him for three days, and rather than send them home, he tells the disciples to feed them. And with seven loaves of bread and a few fish, Jesus feeds the whole multitude. And they end up with, with seven basketfuls, like harvest basketfuls of food left over. Jesus satisfied their need in an incredible way. And as the people then walk away from this, verse 11 picks up where we're going to look this morning. And it says that the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Now, as we read that first statement, that should give us some indication of where the Pharisees are in their understanding of who Jesus is. That they show up not to really ask questions, not to learn. They're showing up as accusers. They're showing up as people who are looking for something to point out, to put Jesus on the spot, to make him look bad, because their hearts are hard. And it says that they came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, if we're reading our passage clearly, what just happened? Jesus just fed how many people? 4,000. With how many loaves of bread? Seven. We did the math last week. That's about 571 people per loaf of bread. All right, we can't even make the Lord's Supper go that far, right? I mean, it's, you can't do that. That just does not happen. That is a miracle. That is a sign. And yet, these guys show up, and they, they, they're blind to that. But they're also blind to the other things Jesus has been doing. Jesus has, has been raising the dead. He's been healing the sick. He's been casting out demons. He is doing a multitudes of, uh, of incredible signs. So much that the crowds of people are crushing in on him at different times. 
and people just wanting to touch his garments and be healed. So the word is out. Jesus has provided plenty of signs. But these people, because of who they are, because of their own self-righteousness, show up and they say, give us a sign. And we read in verse 12, Jesus' response. It says, and he sighed deeply in spirit. I'll just pause there. He sighed deep, before he says anything, it's as though he just goes, <sighs> you know, and there's that, a, a sigh can mean a whole lot, right? I mean, there's a sigh that's like, <sighs> and there's a sign that's like, I mean, all these signs, but this sigh, Jesus sighs deeply, is because he's looking at these people who have been given so much evidence, so much information, so many reasons to believe, and yet they won't believe. And this sigh, I believe, is a sigh of, of, of disappointment and discouragement at the hardness of these guys' hearts, that they're not getting it. And they're not getting it, not because there's been a lack of an evidence, of evidence, but because of a lack or a hardness of their own hearts. And so Jesus sighs deeply. And I, I think sometimes as those of you who are parents can recognize this kind of a sigh. Whenever you have been teaching your kids and teaching your kids, and they make a, a, make a disheartening decision, or they do something that's like, uh, it, it, it's this hurt that you have that you realize they're just not getting it yet. Well, Jesus sighs deeply, then he speaks. And he says to this crowd, these, these Pharisees, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. And he got into the boat again, and he went to the other side. And in this passage, what we see Jesus doing, we see Jesus rejecting the demands of this hostile opponent that they're hostile to them. He knows what they're up to. He knows that they've got plenty of reason, that he doesn't need to give them another example. But he asked the question, why does this generation seek a sign? And I think that's a question that he's asking them, why are you seeking this? Because they're, they're thinking like we often think, because seeing is believing. Right? We hear that, right? People say, well, I'll, I'll believe if I can see this. If God will do this for me, I will see I was meeting with a man a few months ago, and we met over an extended period of time. He was an unbeliever, wrestling through some of the truths of the Bible and doubting some of these things. And he would make the argument regularly, if God would just show up every few decades and do a miracle, that would seem to really help his case. And I thought, well, there's, there's a level that that seems reasonable if faith comes by sight. If faith comes by what we hear, and if God hasn't already given us plenty to believe. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalm. If you're in the book of Mark, this is going to be back in about the middle of your Bible. And in Psalm 19, this is on page. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you, there's a pew Bible close to you. Um, on the pew bi in your pew Bible, this is on page 456. Why we say this is we want to be a Bible people. We want to be a people that are looking at the Bible, not just taking my word for what this says, but let's look together. And in this, so these people are saying, give us a sign. And I want to see in this passage that Jesus and the God the Father would already say to us essentially, I've already given you plenty. I've already given you plenty of signs. It says this in Psalm 19, verse 1. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
Now, as I read these verses, I want you to pick up on the number of times that something is proclaimed, something is stated, something is, our words are being said through this inanimate object of our creation. Okay? So it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all of the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. And what he's saying to us there is that creation is speaking loudly to us. That we look at our creation as we look at the design in our creation, the vastness of our creation, the power in our creation. We look at those things in our creation and what our response should be is like, whoa. Because that creation is God saying to us, I'm here. I'm here. Just open your eyes because you can't explain this. You can't explain where all this power, where all the vastness, where all the design. You can't explain where that comes from. I've done it. Open your eyes. He's given us plenty of signs. Look with me in the book of Romans, chapter 1. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is making a very similar argument. Romans is in their New Testament. It is after the book of Acts. And in our Pew Bible, or if you're using that, it is going to be on page 939. And in this passage, we're seeing that God is saying to us again, I'm here, I'm here. And then people would say, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I believe it or not. Well, Paul addresses those people who are skeptics. And it says in verse 19, when it talks about, well, let's begin in verse 18. He talks about in Romans 1:18, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here's what I want us to see. Who by their unrighteousness means I'm living my way. I'm not, I'm not going to submit to God's authority. I'm not going to do that. In their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. What truth are they suppressing? Hey, I'm here. I'm here. And it's like, blah, 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 blah. I'm here. I'm not listening. Right? They suppress the truth in verse 19. And here's why. For what can be known about God is plain to them. I've given you signs. I'm making myself known. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, how's God shown this stuff to me? Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. It's all clear ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. What is he saying? That we have no excuse for not believing in God. That we have no excuse. That we can't say like these Pharisees were back in Mark chapter, Mark chapter 7, show us a sign, Jesus, because I'm not sure I can believe without a sign. And he says, you've had plenty. And the reason you want more signs is not, not because you have, don't have enough evidence. It's because you're unwilling to believe the evidence I've already given. Which demonstrates to us that our primary problem when it comes to God is not an issue of evidence, but it's an issue of our hearts. And will I believe this? 
Well, back to Mark 8. Let's get back to our passage and, and see this. And so they're demanding a sign. And just like them, we too often demand a sign. But what we see in this is Jesus not giving them a sign. He rejects the demands of this hostile opponent. And what does he do? He doesn't play our game. Jesus isn't like, okay, listen, you guys can set the rules. You know, yeah, you're my creatures. I've made you. I've given you life, breath. I've given you everything that you've ever had, but I'll play your game. That's not how it works. He's God. We submit to him. And we don't submit to him out of of a blindness. We submit to him with our eyes wide open at all the truths that he has given to us. And we realize that those asking for a sign in our passage, their hearts are hard. They are settled in their unbelief and they don't want to hear. Jesus didn't fit into their idea of what God should be like, so they are rejecting Jesus. And I'm convinced that's what's true in our culture. Oftentimes we see people rejecting God. They reject the Bible. They reject Jesus. Why? Because God doesn't fit the way they expect him to operate. Rather than take God for how he's introduced himself to us in the Bible, they say, well, my God would this, or my God wouldn't this. And the reality is, the God of the Bible has introduced himself to us, and we submit to him. The passage continues. Jesus gets in the boat, and he goes to the other side. Verse 14 says, And they, these are disciples, had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Now, let's pause here. How many people did one loaf feed? 571, okay? So they've got one loaf. Should one loaf be enough for them probably? Yeah, because who else is in the boat with them? Jesus. Yeah, yeah. how about this? They only not have they only not have one loaf of bread with the boat in them in the boat with them. They have the bread of life in the boat with them. So there's a level that one, one, one loaf shouldn't be a problem because we forgot the baskets. I mean, I had 12 baskets left over. And if you're, I'm, I'm thinking these disciples are a lot like us. And they kind of start arguing about whose fault it was. They left the bread and why they don't have it and all this. Well, they forget this bread. But Jesus isn't concerned about that at all because in verse 15 it says, And he cautioned them. Okay, he's, he, his disciples are worrying about this bread. And he cautions them saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. This leaven, leaven is yeast, right? You put yeast in a lump of dough, and what does it do? It expands and expands and expands, and it makes the whole dough rise, and it infiltrates all of it. Okay, it's kind of cool because what did we just see in the first part of the passage? Jesus multiplied bread. Okay, watch yeast do. It causes multiplication in bread keeping that same idea of multiplication. And he's saying, be careful. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, in verse 16 it says, and they began discussing with one another the deep theological truths of what Jesus just said. Does your Bible say that? No. It says, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And I think, and this, we're not recorded in Scripture, but if uh, in my sanctified imagination, I think Jesus probably sighed deeply again. <sighs> okay, because what's going on? The disciples are missing this. But Jesus is wanting them to understand something really important, that this leaven of the Pharisees and of, of Herod, this, this leaven, this little bitty thing can create a big problem in our lives. And it's this little bit of leaven of Herod and the Pharisees that's the leaven, the sins of sins like of self-righteousness. 
sins of pride, sins of arrogance, sins of, I've got this all figured out. And he describes those sins as leaven, as little sins. And, and, and I think that we can be very guilty of the same things, and we need to hear this warning to watch out for the little sins. Now, the big sins are like, yeah, I'm staying away from those because those are bad. And those are really messed up my life. But these little sins of pride, of arrogance, self-righteousness, that I've got this all figured out, those are little sins that multiply and multiply and multiply in our lives and end up corrupting all kinds of problems. When we think that pride, well, how big of a problem is pride? Well, think about this. And you're a married couple and you have, you're, you're, a, you're a proud spouse. What does that mean you don't do? That means you don't do anything wrong. And so guess what else that means? You don't ask for forgiveness. You don't say, forgive me, honey, I was wrong. You don't say that. Why? Because I'm right. I'm proud. And this little sin of pride. And what happens is that multiplies in a relationship over a few decades. Nice, harmonious, peaceful relationship, right? Warm and fuzzy, right? No. Cold and distant. Why? Because a little bit of leaven has been given some heat and over a period of time, and it makes for a hard relationship. Little bit of sin, little bit of sexual sin, that, 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 that well, it's just my thoughts, or it's just I'm looking at a little bit of this, that it grows and it grows. And he's saying, watch out for it. Because little sins don't just explode on us. They grow and grow in a subtle way, and we don't even know. We're not even mindful of it. It ends up destroying us, messing up all kinds of different parts of our lives. And he tells them to be aware of this. He's warning them of this need. Well, it goes on then, as we see that, though, the disciples are missing this. They, they miss this, and they don't, they don't hear what Jesus says, and they're arguing about the bread, and who forgot bread? And in verse 17, it says, And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Now, he says this. There are eight questions here. Okay, now, as a kid, when my mom started asking questions and not giving me much time for answer, that wasn't good, right? I'm in trouble, right? And here's what he says. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes to see and having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves and five thousand uh, for 5,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said 12. And, he, and, se- and seven for the 4,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And they said seven. Which should, again, put the brakes on the fact that yeah, why are we worrying about not having any bread? We got a loaf. This isn't a concern. And Jesus says then the last question, and he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand that I am a compassionate Savior? You are my people, and I love you, and I'm going to take care of you. Aren't you understanding that there is more, that we live by more than bread alone? These words that I'm speaking to you are what you need to be paying attention to, not the lack of food that's in the boat with us. And I think that we too oftentimes are like these disciples that we get focused on what we don't have. We get focused on what we think that we need. And as a result of that, because of that focus shifts there, we're really distracted from listening to God. Listening to God and trusting God. 
I'm worried about all these things in my life, all the worries and all that. And those, these worries become like these weeds that begin to choke me in my relationship and my passion for the Lord. And Jesus is saying, don't you understand? All of these things that we get so worried about, Jesus says, listen, I care for you. He says, think about, he uses an example in the Gospels. Jesus talks about, about sparrows, right? And he talks about these two sparrows. At our house, we have all kinds of sparrows. We, on our barn in the back, and they make a mess, and they're this scrawny little bird, and they're kind of worthless, right? And uh, Jesus would agree with me because he said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, right? I mean, they're worthless animals. I mean, you couldn't even, I mean, if they cooked them, it, you wouldn't even get any, I mean, they're worthless. Okay, anyway, so these, these worthless little birds that we would see, they're sold for two pennies. Jesus says to them, not one of them falls without me knowing about it. Those worthless birds are sold for a penny. Jesus says, I care about those birds. And then he says, and how much more then do I care for you? And we get so distracted by that. We're like, well, I'm not sure Jesus is going to provide for me. I'm not sure he's going to take care of me. And Jesus says, listen, look at the flowers. Look how beautiful they are. How hard are they working to make themselves beautiful? Well, they don't work. They just grow. And Jesus would say, that's the point. Trust me. Can you trust me? And, and, and then when we say, okay, Lord, help me to trust you, that we, our eyes are open. And so what is Jesus doing in this section? That Jesus in this section is rebuking the ignorance of his loyal crowd. I mean, these, these people love Jesus. They're with him. They're following him. They're in the boat. They're, they're serious about all this. But, but they don't see fully yet. Right? Their eyes have been opened, and they see and they understand who, lots of things about Jesus. And so they're consistently following him. They're not like the, the rebellious, hard-hearted Pharisees. Their eyes have been opened, and they're following Jesus. But they don't see clearly yet. They're still missing it. And, and, then, and, and then that fits right into our next passage, because in this, that Jesus expects us to pay attention in the challenge for us this morning, are we paying attention to this? What is Jesus trying to teach us by feeding 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread, hard-hearted people rejecting God, those whose eyes have been opened who know who he is, but, but they're not really getting it yet. What's the point of all this? Well, Mark, in his wisdom, as he writes this book, he puts together a miracle here. He's going to tell us about a miracle that Jesus performed. Now, miracles are supernatural acts of God that reveal to us the power of God. Okay, they're supernatural. People can't do them, and that's why we call them miracles. But a miracle is more than just to reveal God's power. One author has described miracles as visual parables. A parable is a truth that Jesus would teach, and it would reveal truth to those whose hearts are tender, but it would hide truth from those whose hearts were hard. Miracles are the same thing. When Jesus performs a miracle, there are some who see it, and their eyes are open, they're like, I get this. And others see it, and their hearts are hardened. For instance, we see Jesus raise a guy by the name of Lazarus. Some people, these guys have been dead for four days, they raise him from the dead, some people believe. Other people, they want to kill Lazarus because more people are following Jesus because of it. And like, How could that be? It's a condition of our hearts. And miracles reveal that. Well, what is this miracle teaching us? Let's look in verse 22. 
And they came to Bethsaida, and some of the people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, he laid his hands on him, and he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home to his village, saying, Do not even enter the village. Well, as we look at this, we see that Jesus shows up in this town, and these people, it's interesting, they bring their friend to Jesus, this blind guy, his friends bring him here, which kind of makes sense, because if he's blind, how's he going to get to Jesus? But as we see that, this is the third time in a couple passages in, back in chapter 7 that other people are bringing people to Jesus, and Jesus heals them. I mean, look back, he, if you look back in chapter uh, 7, verse 24, there was this woman. She's a Gentile woman. She brings her daughter to Jesus and says, Jesus, cast this demon out of my daughter. And what does Jesus do? Jesus does it. The mom had the faith and brought the daughter. We look down a little lower in verse 31, and we see there's this deaf man, and who brings uh, his friends bring him to Jesus, and Jesus heals him. Here, we're having a blind guy, his friends bringing him to Jesus, and Jesus heals him. Right? There are probably a lot of things we can say about that idea, but here's one, a couple of them. One is that when people love their friends enough, they bring him to Jesus. That should be a challenge to us evangelistically. Because we know that Jesus can heal people and make them whole spiritually. And God wants for all, for, well, he wants all people to be saved. And guess what? Sometimes people aren't looking. So what do we need to do? We need to take them. We need to get them to Jesus. But we could also see, though, as well, that, that the intercession or the work of these people on behalf of others paid dividends. And I would encourage us, what does that maybe teach us? That we need to be praying for others. That Jesus hears our prayers and our cries for others, and Jesus responds to our prayers. He loves us. Well, what happens to this in this passage? So, Jesus takes the blind man by the hands. It's interesting. He leads him out of the village. Like I said, I don't want this to be a public spectacle. Take this guy outside the village, leading him by hand, which is pretty cool as well, that Jesus is touching this guy, right? I mean... Just amazing to think about that, that the Messiah taking you by the hand and leading you to a place where he's going to heal you. That's the love of Christ. And he gets out then, and it says, and he spit on his eyes. Now, that's kind of weird, right? I mean, we spit on his eyes. That would that'd be really weird. But with, with the other passage, we see like he spit, and he made mud with it and put it on his eyes. So we're not exactly sure all that that happened. But Jesus is putting something. He's not just telling this guy to be healed. Jesus is doing an act. And he does this act, and what happens this, he says, do you see anything? And he says, I see people. So what has happened? This guy's eyesight has, been, eyesight has been restored. He couldn't see before. Now he can. Jesus has opened this guy's eyes. And yet, he says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Right? I mean, his eyes are very foggy. You know, he can't see. He can't make out distinctions and all that. And so he can see, but he can't see clearly. So what happens? Jesus laid hands on his eyes again. Jesus puts his hands on his eyes, and he opened his eyes. Jesus opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. This beautiful picture of Jesus restoring this man's 
eyesight. And what we see in this is that Jesus opens the eyes of this blind man. And what we begin to see in this is that Jesus restores eyesight instantly and sharpens it progressively. Whenever we come to know Jesus as our Savior, we move out of lightness, out of darkness into the light, out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of Jesus. God makes a transfer when we repent and believe. And then what does he do in this walk of sanctification? He continues to open our eyes to bigger realities, to understand Jesus more and more. And I'm confident that all of you here today who are believers in Jesus Christ would say amen to that. Because you think about what you know about God, what you know about Jesus, what you know about the Bible. And, 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 and I know for my own self, I'm thinking, man, I know so much more now than I, when I got saved. It's almost like, man, I don't even know how I could have gotten saved without knowing any more than I did. But the reality is, what does God do? He opens our eyes. He opens our eyes to the gospel of Jesus that the very simple things that we need to recognize is that, that I am a hopeless and helpless sinner apart from the grace of God. And what does God do? God in his love has come. Jesus dies on the cross, raises from the dead, calls us to repent and believe. And when we do, our eyes are opened. And I would ask you this morning, have your spiritual eyes been opened to the beauty and the glory of Jesus? Are you truly trusting him as your savior not simply knowing these facts and giving lip service the facts yeah, i believe that those facts have you surrendered your life to this messiah do you do you love him do you love him and is your life being transformed by him and i want to i want to beg you this morning if you have not trusted if you're not trusting jesus to make today the day of salvation. Make today the day when Jesus opens your eyes and gives you new life. For, for those of us who are believers, I would ask you the question as we were celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning about reflecting and rejoicing and um, remembering what Jesus did, that we would be asking ourselves, am I walking in step with the gospel? Maybe another way of saying it is this, am I walking like somebody who has eyesight or am I just fumbling around like somebody that doesn't see stuff clearly? And that you would say and you would commit, Jesus, I'm going to follow you closely. Open my eyes. Continue to give me more sight. Help me to see the circumstances and the people and the truths and all the things that you want me to see because, Jesus, I want to see you more and more clearly so that I walk more and more faithfully with you. Believers, we would say, Jesus, thank you for opening my eyes. God, continue to sharpen my vision. And as our vision is sharpened, then we grow to love and we begin to proclaim his gospel in clearer ways and living that out in our everyday lives. And so as we conclude this morning, I would ask you the question, do you see and are you seeing clearly? And I would call you to believe the gospel. I call you to encourage you to read the Bible, to see it more clearly. I encourage you to think hard about what am I going to do with this? It's progressive eyesight. Is it taking place in your life? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you have given to us. We thank you that you love us more than we can imagine. And Lord, when we get so caught up in all the details of life, we get worried about one loaf of bread and we miss your truth. 
Lord, we end up sometimes having a hard heart. We want you to prove yourself to us more and more. God, I pray that we would not be suppressing the truth in our hearts, but that we would be living with eyes wide open. And God, I pray as you open our eyes that we would love you more and more, that we would know you, love you, and live for you, that our lives would be being transformed and that we would be engaged with others and helping others to see the beauty and the glory of who you are. God, I pray that you would help us. And Lord, this morning as we receive our offering, I pray that you would help us to, to spend time reflecting on these truths and reflecting on where we are in a relationship with you. That, that, that we would give you praise for the work that you've done, but God, that we would also continue to press on to deeper and deeper truths and a higher knowledge and a greater love for you and others. And so God, help us to be reflective as we receive our offering this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, if you could come.